I've always loved photography. Uh, whether I was using a 35 millimeter film camera, remember those ones? Uh, or a Polaroid, where you have to kind of flap it to dry, or one of those pocket digital cameras. Uh, have you ever tried taking a selfie with those where you don't see yourself, but you kind of go, gotta go like that at the right angle? Or those DSLRs or the cameras on our phones. I've always loved framing up shots, changing the focal plane, the depth of field, the different aspects of it. I've always just loved every single part of that. Sometimes making something blurry and other things focused and vice versa, or sometimes keeping everything in focus. So I wanted to show you a couple photos to, to give you a sense as to what happens when we focus on one thing over another. The first one's a picture of my dog, Luna. Don't worry, I have not set up our Christmas tree yet. <laughs> This is from last year. Uh, but as you see, our eye goes directly to her, not the Christmas tree, not the, uh, the, the stockings in the background. Okay, and then let's take a look at the next photo. This one is from this past week. Uh, my dog, she got too tired of me taking photos of her. <laughs> uh, but this is a picture of everything in focus in our living room. And then the next one is on our deck. And uh, I think this time Christina was tired of me taking photos. She's kind of looking off in the distance and, and Luna's right there. Uh, yeah, you can see all the details, right? I mean, your eye goes directly to the dog, right? And then this last one is fun. Uh, this is where uh, my kids are outside and dogs on the inside. And I think they all wish they were on the other side of the window. <laughs> uh, but you see here, everything's in focus, right? So where do you look? Did your eyes go to the lights or to the dog, to my kids? It's kind of, we all go to different places when everything's in focus, right? Our eyes get directed to different places. Well, last week we learned that Paul the author of this letter to the Philippians, learned how to serve at the pleasure of the king. Not our new king, Charles III or, or Caesar, uh, but King Jesus. That's who he learned how to serve. He wore the king's jersey. He worked for the king's company. He was one of the king's men. Uh, the king's purposes was his purpose. The king's mission was his mission. And his only metric for success was faithfulness to the king. Paul lived this way because he learned how to focus. He learned how to adjust the lens. And, and this is before lenses and frames of reference and depths of field and all that stuff. Paul knew this fact. He knew that sometimes in order to focus on something, you have to blur away other things. And he knew that. Sometimes in order to focus on the important thing, you have to blur away the lesser things. It's like a Zoom call. Have you ever been on a Zoom call where, where someone blurred out their background? And I mean, we all have different reasons why we might do that. Maybe it's because there's dirty laundry in the background or a pile of unwashed dishes or, or maybe it's just because before one of your grown children would walk in the morning with their shirt off, brushing their teeth and just walk around in your Zoom call. Didn't happen to me. <laughs> uh, one of my friends, actually, this is why she always keeps it blurred, because her young adult son has one too many times been in her work calls. <laughs> Now, here's the thing, right? Even though you might blur the background, everything is still there, right? I mean, just by hitting that blur button, it doesn't mean everything gets deleted or, or 
is pushed to the side. No, it's still there, but the blurring helps your eyes focus. That's what it helps us do. And you know, we live in a day and age where everything is vying for our attention. Right? New and improved. Flash sale. Get this before it's gone. I mean, how many, like, how is it possible that Tide can always be new and improved? (laughs) Right? It always has that sticker on it. We live in this day and age, right? Everything's trying to get our attention. So how do we focus on what's most important? Well, that's what we're gonna be learning about today. We're gonna learn today that in order to get better at focusing, we need to get better at blurring. Because God created the human eye with such brilliance. I I mean, think about this, right? Like at the same time we can focus on everything, we can blur some things, we can not blur other things, we can blur everything away with our human eyes. And, and, and when you think about it, like why do you get glasses? To get rid of the blurriness, right? I mean, so we've grown up with this sense that blurriness is bad. We, should, we don't wanna learn how to blur, we, we get rid of the blurriness. Yet as we'll see here today, what Paul discovered is that sometimes in order to um, focus on the important thing, we need to blur away the lesser things. So let's take a look at Philippians 2, 19 to 24, and we're gonna learn how to blur our self-absorption, blur our uninvolvement, and blur our pessimism. So take a look at this starting from verse 19. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. So the first thing we're gonna discover here is how to blur our self-absorption. And when you think about that word, self-absorption, what comes to mind? Perhaps it's someone who just thinks about themselves, right? Maybe someone who's highly opinionated, someone who's selfish, arrogant, insecure. In other words, Tony Stark in the Iron Man, (laughs) right? Or, Or maybe it's Sheldon Cooper in the Big Bang Theory. Or, or maybe it's Frodo in The Lord of the Rings as the ring gets more of a grip on him. Or, or maybe, maybe it's Loki in Loki. <laughs> like, why is the series named after himself? <laughs> you know. Um, but think about this. I, I love this quote from Mark Twain. I think self-absorption is best summed up with this. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly have to, have to stand the old, um, to, to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned (laughs) in seven years. (laughs) Friends, when you look at verse 19 to 21, what you'll see, what we'll discover is that Paul learned how to blur his self-absorption by focusing on the Philippians' needs. So take a look at verse 19 to 21 again. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. 
for I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, for context, here's what's going on. Paul's in prison. He's writing this letter to the church in Philippi in the province of Macedonia. Now, this church was the first Christian church established in Europe. And Paul started this church in the early 50s in the first century as their pastor. And then after starting the church, he then passed the leadership baton on to Luke as he then headed west toward Thessalonica. And then sometime in the late 50s, early 60s, Paul is writing this letter that we're reading right now to the Philippians from prison. Now, through the years, as much as the Philippians had been meeting their pastor's needs financially, materially, through spiritual encouragement, we see here in these verses that Paul is not thinking about himself. He's not asking for more to his congregation. Instead, he's actually thinking about the Philippians and their needs. And we know this because he's saying to them, he's telling them, hey, you know what? I'm going to send Timothy to you. He's not asking them to send someone to him or more people to him. He's saying, no, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Paul blurred his self-absorption by focusing on the Philippians' needs. And you know what? Sure, Paul was imprisoned. He was waiting trial He had lots of needs in and of himself, but he actually knew how much difficulty and how much needs the Philippians had as well. Take a look at this, uh, what this one theologian says about the Philippians and what they were facing. Opponents of the Christian community were causing great alarm in the congregation, and the Judaizing threat was beginning to make itself felt. Physical needs were producing anxiety among the members who had begun to wonder whether their Christian faith was capable of sustaining them. All of those factors combined to create disagreements, distrust, and a poisonous spirit of self-seeking. The leadership of the church, particularly in the persons of Euodia and Syntacti, had fallen into the sin of dissension, and the general health of the church had deteriorated considerably. So instead of seeking his own interests, Paul here is seeking the interests of Jesus Christ, which in this situation turns out to be an expression of loving God by loving the neighbor, his neighbor, the Philippians, by meeting their needs. This is what he's talking about in verse 21. All seek their own interests. This is what he's talking about. Not those of Jesus Christ. All are self-absorbed. And this is true in Rome, this is true in Philippi, as much as it's true today with us too, right? In our culture, look out for number one. Watch your own back. That's, that was the prevailing motto of that day. And, and Paul here, through his actions and his words, is deciding to blur his self-absorption by focusing on the Philippians' needs. Now, like I said earlier, blurring isn't denial, when you blur things, remember that Zoom call? You don't, it doesn't get rid of the things behind you. But what it does is it helps you focus. And in this situation, Paul is focusing on the king. He knows that the king will provide for his needs, his daily bread, just like God provided manna for the Israelites in the desert. He knew that. His faith in God was such 
And he's like, yeah, God's gonna take care of my needs. So instead of focusing on my own and, and falling into that trap of self-absorption, I'm gonna focus on the needs of those around me. Right? Paul knew that God had a purpose in and through this imprisonment, even though he didn't know how long he was gonna be imprisoned for. So instead of focusing on his own needs, he knew that God, says in Matthew 6, 8, that God knows the things we need before we ask him. Paul knew this, so he decided to blur his self-absorption by focusing on the needs of those around him. What do you think it would look like for you to do the same today, for us to do the same today? First and foremost, it would start by thinking about those around us, right? Those we live with, those we work or, or study with, those we sit beside. We start by thinking about those who are just in our daily lives. And then we need to ask them or think to ourselves, what needs do they have? And perhaps the reason your neighbor always says hi to you and and wants to connect with you is because they just want a friend. And perhaps it's not as much as them needing anything materially or or, or financially, but they just, it's just friendship. And perhaps that's one way that you can meet their need. Or maybe you have, um, there's someone in your life who's recently lost a loved one. Or they've had a baby. And perhaps their need is a a, a hot meal that they didn't cook. (laughs) Perhaps that's one way that you can meet their need. Or or perhaps it's it's shoveling, right? I mean, not yet. not trying to say anything here, but, but perhaps it's shoveling, right? And it's just tangibly meeting the needs of those that live around you, right? Think about those needs, ask them what their needs are, and then the last step is just to prayerfully meet them. Now, I'm not saying that we meet everyone's needs around us. I mean, it's impossible, you can't do that. That's why I think that last step is to prayerfully discern and prayerfully ask God, is this a need that you are calling me to? meet. We're not saviors here, but God wants to use us and he wants to work in and through us to meet one another's needs. And when we do that, we end up wearing the self-absorption that sometimes takes over our lives. Okay, so that's the first um, thing that Paul blurred. He blurred his self-absorption, but in this passage, we also learn that he blurred his uninvolvement. His uninvolvement. Now, what, what do you think that means, that word uninvolvement? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary and, and it was profound. Uh, the definition was the act of not being involved. <laughs> Duh, right? Like, you know, you know, sometimes the dictionary is like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a profound definition. Other times you're like, yeah, okay, I, I, I already knew that. Um, but, but think about that, right? Like, what does it mean to be uninvolved? Specifically, particularly, let's, let's talk about parenting, okay? Um, what does uninvolvement look like when it comes to parenting? It's neglect, isn't it? Indifference. For one reason or another, there's lots going on and I can't focus, I can't help, I can't, I can't concentrate, so, so, so maybe you just aren't making a lot of demands on your kids or a lot of demands aren't made on you and, and it, and one point, it kind of feels good, but in another sense, it's kind of like, oh, is this, what's going on here? 
Now, what about politics? Right, what does uninvolvement look like when it comes to politics? Probably means you don't care what's going on. You don't know which candidates are up, what each candidate believes, what they stand for, what, what each party is doing, what they're hoping and planning to do. So uninvolvement when it comes to politics probably means indifference. That probably leads to you not voting. When you look at every sphere of our lives, every single thing that we do, every category of life that we have, uninvolvement looks different in every situation. But regardless of what that category might be for you, we all have reasons why we might be uninvolved or choose to be uninvolved in any particular situation, right? Maybe we're just busy and we don't have time. It's not that we don't care, we're just busy. Maybe it's that you don't care. Right, and that's, that's kind of what leads to that uninvolvement. Maybe you used to care, but something happened. Maybe you were triggered or there was some sort of trauma that you're, you're kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a defense mechanism. Right? Why are you uninvolved in some situations and not others? Uninvolvement isn't a black and white thing. It's not that you're an uninvolved person or not. We all face the temptation to choose to be uninvolved in any given situation, right? Sometimes at multiple points in that same day, we'll choose uninvolvement. We all face this temptation to throw our hands up, to disengage, to not care. But when we look at verse 20 to 22, we see that Paul was able to resist the temptation Resist the te- this temptation that, that, that it wasn't just unique to him, it applies to all of us. He was able to resist this temptation to become uninvolved. Because you know what? When you think about it, if anyone had the right to be uninvolved, it was Paul. The guy was in prison and he didn't know how long he was going to be in prison for. And when you compare how he lived, like the type of life he lived before prison to what he got to do in prison, like he was like, like his reason... He had all the justification to throw his hands up and be like, I can't do anything anymore. Yet he chose not to. He blurred the temptation to become uninvolved by, as we'll see in verse 20 to 22, by discipling Timothy. Take a look at this. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. So by the time Paul wrote this letter, um, he had been discipling Timothy for years. He had planted, Timothy had helped plant this church in Philippi, start this church in Philippi with Luke and Silas along with Paul. And then um, Timothy was a third generation Christian. His mom Eunice and his grandmother Lois, he was discipled as he was growing up. But when you look at the letters and you study the life of Timothy, we actually see that his most formative years of discipleship happened under Paul. As Paul traveled through Europe to start and plant churches, Timothy came along with them and he helped them. They did it together. He discipled him in that. Then when Paul went to Athens, he left Timothy at Berea to go and make disciples by starting a church there. And then Paul put Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus, and then he wrote two letters to him in Ephesus. That's what First and Second Timothy are. 
to help him know how to pastor the church there. Paul not only taught Timothy how to follow the way of Jesus, but he equipped and he empowered him to disciple others to follow the way of Jesus. No wonder he says that Timothy is like-minded to himself, someone who genuinely cares and has proven character in these verses. Timothy was Paul's disciple. You could, actually, when you look at the language in verse 22, you see that, that Timothy was like a spiritual son to his spiritual father. Take a look at this. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Or take a look at 1 Corinthians 4.17. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus just as I teach everywhere in every church. So as we see in this letter, Paul not only discipled Timothy through the years, but even when Paul could choose indifference, because he was in prison, he chose not to by writing letters to Timothy and by visiting with Timothy even when he was in prison. Paul decided to actively disciple Timothy here. You know, sometimes we make discipleship complicated. We, we think discipleship is this big and grandeur thing, but when you think about what discipleship is in kind of its simplest form, it's, it's, it's pointing one another to Jesus while we're doing life together. Right? In the everyday stuff of life, in the everyday boring and exciting stuff of life, doing it together and pointing one another to Jesus while we're doing it. That's why we talk about gathering, growing, giving, and going. It's easy language. It's accessible. We all understand what it means to gather, grow, give, and go. And, and disciples, that's what they do together. Discipleship is about following Jesus. It's about being continually changed by Jesus and joining him in what he is doing in the world together with others. And like we see here with Timothy, you can simultaneously be discipled and disciple someone else at the same time. You can be a spiritual son and a spiritual father. You can be a spiritual mom and a spiritual daughter. And you can be a disciple and a disciple maker all at the same time. It's not one after the other. Because take a look at this. A disciple maker is a disciple who in the context of relationship is helping others follow Jesus, be continually changed by Jesus, and join him in what he's doing in the world. A disciple maker invites, calls, and challenges others to gather, grow, give, and go together. So what do you think about becoming a disciple maker? Does that sound like an optional thing to you? Does it sound like a secondary thing or does it sound like a primary thing? In some of Jesus' last words, we read it in Matthew 28. He said, go and Go ye therefore and be disciples, right? No. <laughs> I mean, have you ever thought of that? Like Jesus didn't say, in his last words, he didn't say go and be disciples. Like he wants us to be disciples. But isn't it interesting how he didn't say that? He said go and make disciples. He didn't say Y'all go and be disciples, and then some of you, next level discipleship, go and make disciples. No, he said, go and make disciples. Being a disciple was implied underneath 
because you could do both at the same time. So you know when we focus on obeying this foundational, this primary call of Jesus to go and make disciples by blurring out, when we focus on this, what happens is we'll be able to better blur out our uninvolvement, blur out our, 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 our tempta- that temptation to disengage, you know, that temptation to, to not care, that temptation to, to just throw our hands up and be like, I don't know, I don't know if I can do that. We, we can blur out that uninvolvement and kind of root that out of our lives by accepting the call of Jesus to go and make disciples. That's what Paul's talking about here. So if you want to blur out your uninvolvement, uh, I want to encourage you to participate in the way encounter. Now, some of you might be like, hey, I thought that series is something that we talked about in August. Like, it's September. It's almost at the end of September. What are you talking about here? And, and actually, yes, through September, we talked about what it looks like to together, gather, grow, give and go. But, but what we did at the end of that was start something called the way encounter. And you can hop in. You can start the 12-week journey even today. You can download this journal at Beulah.family or by going to Beulah.ca slash the way. And, and when you do that, there's actually a week by week encounter and an experience to help you learn how to both be and make disciples. You know, our team created this to, to help you learn how to follow the way of Jesus. So I, I do hope that you pick that up. Well, lastly, we see in Philippians 2 that the third way that Paul was able to focus on the king was by blurring out his pessimism. Pessimism is the tendency to see the worst of things or to see the worst in people or, or really pessimism in, in, in one sense of things is just kind of a lack of hope. And you know what, when I, when I think about pessimism, I think Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Like that guy is the archetype characterization of pessimism. So take a look at this. I love this. It's a compilation of clips of, of Eeyore. Um, and I love this. You might be an Eeyore if you sound like this. So take, listen to this. Good morning, Pooh Bear. If it is a good morning, which, which I, I doubt. Did I get your tail back on properly, Eeyore? No matter. Most likely lose it again anyway. Poor dear. You know, Look at how excited I may she is. have just the thing. Up, up, up you go. Right? <laughs> there you are. And look at your It's response. an awful nice tail, Kanga. Much nicer than, than the rest, rest of me. me. It's not much of a tail, but I'm sort, sort of attached to it. Oh, man. This guy's so sad. Not much of a house. Just right for not much of a donkey. <laughs> Might take a day or two. Oh, I guess that's a little bit of a hope, End right? of the road. Of hope. End of the road. Nothing to do. Nothing to do. And no hope of no things hope of getting things better. better. And wait for it. Wait for it. Sounds like Saturday night at my house. <laughs> oh, man. Do you know any modern day Eeyores? Don't look at them. Uh, you know, in the past, I've worked with some. Uh, I've went to school with some Eeyores, and occasionally when, uh, if you catch me on the wrong day, I could sometimes be an Eeyore too. Uh, can anyone relate with that? Right, this Eeyore-ness. 
Well, when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he had all the right reasons to be an Eeyore. He had all the right reasons to be pessimistic. Like I said, he was in prison and he didn't know how long he was going to be in prison for. So he could have dwelt and and sat in that pessimism, right? He could have become an Eeyore and it would have been completely justifiable. Yet we see here in verses 23 and 24 that that instead of focusing on his circumstances, because that's what happens, right? Like the reason we become so pessimistic at times is because our present circumstances, like we're engulfed in them. We're drowning in our present circumstances. We don't see God's faithfulness before. We don't see God's faithfulness after. We're not living with gratitude. He could have done this. He could have focused on his circumstances, but instead of that, Paul blurred his pessimism by living with hope. So take a look at this, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. Friends, how could, how could Paul be so confident here? Or he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know how long he's going to be in prison for. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see his loved ones again. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see the Philippians. He doesn't even know if he's ever going to go home again. He has no idea about any of this. Yet when we read these verses, Paul is writing with such hope, not pessimism. How? Why? Well, here's why. It's because Paul wasn't living with some generic sense of hope. Paul wasn't focusing on his circumstances. And Paul wasn't focusing on hoping to get delivered from his circumstances either. That, that wasn't his hope, and his hope was, in, was not in the future either. His hope was in the one who holds the future. Friends, his hope was in Jesus Christ. His hope was in the one who restores, renews, and redeems all things. His hope was in Jesus Christ, our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. This is who his hope was in. His hope was in the hope of the world. He didn't have, his hope wasn't wasn't in some generic sense of hope. His hope wasn't in hope. His hope was in a person. The object of our hope matters, friends. The object of our hope matters. So if you want to blur out the pessimism in your life, then we need to learn how to live with hope. Not hope generic, but hope in Jesus Christ. We need to learn like Paul to focus on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, we all at certain times lack hope in our lives. And, and if that's the case, I want to encourage, I'm going to show you six verses and, and maybe you want to write the references down or you want to take pictures of this. But, but if you ever find yourself lacking hope or if the weight of your present circumstances are too much for you to bear and you don't even know how to pray, then I pray that you would turn to scripture to shape your prayer life. So take a look at Psalm 119. Sustain me as you promise. When you don't feel the strength to even go on, we can pray, sustain me as you promised, O God, and I will live 
Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. And when you don't know where else to turn, look at Psalm 33. May this be your prayer. May your faithful love rest on us, O Lord. For we put our hope not in hope, we put our hope in you. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 3, since then we have such a hope, we can act with great boldness. Like why and how can Christians live with such boldness and courage in the midst of tenuous circumstances? Well, it's because our courage and our hope is here. It's in Jesus. This is why we can act with such great boldness. Here's another reason in Hebrews 6.19, because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, right? Jesus is the anchor for our soul, firm and secure. And then we see in Psalm 71, for you are my hope, Lord my God, right? And sometimes we just declare that, for you are my hope, my confidence from my youth. And then lastly, a few verses later, but I will hope continually and I'll praise you more and more. What would it look like if we allowed the words of scripture to shape and change and lead the way that we pray? I think our focus would be probably a bit more on Jesus and less on our circumstances, right? Well, I have a friend, been a friend for a long time and, and he's a fashion photographer and, and he gets to travel the world and, and, and work with, on great projects with highly talented people. And, and when we were together, uh, I, this was years ago, I, I had just gotten a DSLR and, and, and was trying to learn how to use it because he was a professional photographer. I was like, hey, can you give me some tips and tricks? Like, how do you, how do, you do that whole blurring thing? Because my photos on my viewfinder look nice but when I put it on my computer, everything's just slightly blurry. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not a good photo. So he taught me depths of field and, and the plane of focus. And he taught me how to blur and, 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 and focus on other things. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. Like, once he taught me how to do that, like, my photos went another level. I mean, now my photos are featured in National Geographic. And they're... <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, the only place my photos are featured are Instagram and Facebook. So, no, but here's the thing. When he taught me how to blur, when I got better at blurring, I actually got better at focusing. And friends, in the same way, when we learn how to blur away the lesser things, because that's often what we blur away, right? Because we want our focus to be on something or someone. When we blur away those things, will then be able to learn how to focus on the greater things, on the great thing, on Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. So, church family, um, I pray that we would live our lives blurring away all the rest and focusing while focusing on King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, this is our prayer. Uh, We pray that like Paul you would show us how to blur away our self-absorption. By focusing and by learning and by discerning and by listening to you and learning how to meet the needs of those around us. 
I also pray that as a church family, that for our church family, for us, that you would help us blur away our uninvolvement, that temptation, that ever-present temptation to just be passive. That you would show us what it means both to be and make disciples. How to be both spiritual sons and daughters and spiritual fathers and mothers at the same time. Every single one of us. And lastly, I pray that you would show us how to blur away our pessimism, that eorness. by living with hope in you, Jesus, and allowing the hope-filled words of Scripture to shape us, to change us, to lead us, and to transform us. And in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.